0: I shall be reading from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I really believe that uh, to fully appreciate the words of our text, you have to go back and read the first two chapters of of this book of Philippians and all the way uh, verses 1 through 10 of the third chapter. In order to really get the backstory for what Paul is saying and what he means and how, how much it means to him in the verses that Greg just read. Because Paul, the Apostle Paul, especially, I mean if you don't read the first three chapters, at least start back in chapter 2 verse 5 where he begins with uh, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Because all of that really fleshes in and helps us to appreciate what he is saying in these, in these three verses. Uh, Paul's overwhelming desire was to know Christ in the most intimate spiritual sense of the word. I mean, he really wanted to know Christ in that sense, that not just know about him, but to be able to know him, to be able to share in his affliction, to be able to, to walk each day knowing that his primary relationship in this world was with the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe we can say that that was his magnificent obsession. And after speaking about that determination to be like Christ, he wrote the words of our text. I want us to look at this closely this morning. You can feel absolutely comfortable in just keeping your Bible open to Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14, because that's where we're going to, to, to park this morning for just the next few minutes. Because it is in these verses that Paul gives us a four-step program or plan for spiritual growth. And that not only worked in his life, worked in the lives of the Philippian Christians to whom he was writing this letter but I think you'll find that 2,000 years later, it still works in a remarkable way in our lives if only we'll make application of these four steps. Step number one is so, maybe a little surprising. The first step in Paul's program for spiritual growth was dissatisfaction. Paul wanted us to know that he was dissatisfied with his current spiritual stature. And that's surprising because I think most of us look at the Apostle Paul as a spiritual giant who really didn't need to grow and didn't need to make any improvements. I mean, that that seems a little strange to us. Because if I were to ask you to name the top five Christians on your list, I'm pretty sure that the Apostle Paul would be somewhere on that list. I'm absolutely certain that he would be on mine very near to the top. Because we all know that Paul was a splendid example of Christianity. And yet he was was dissatisfied with his spiritual progress. Paul said, I'm not... I'm not where I want to be. I still have some growing to do. In fact, he even begins the text with that acknowledgement that I have, I have not yet apprehended. I have not yet gotten to where I need to go. I'm not yet in the, in the land of promise, spiritually speaking, in terms of my growth in Christ. And, and it's imperative that we appreciate that that's, that was the way he viewed his own spiritual standing. He knew that he still had a lot of growing to do. And I think that ought to be a lesson for us too. Step number one in our spiritual growth is to be dissatisfied with where we are. Because what's the only other alternative? If I'm satisfied with where I am, then I'm not going to be trying to grow anymore. I'm just going to stop where I am. Someone has said that the Christian life is like an airplane. When you stop, you drop. And that's exactly right. Paul knew that even before the days when airplanes were invented. So if we're satisfied with our past and our present performance, then we pretty much eliminated the possibility of ever doing any better. In fact, I think there's a word for that, and the word is complacency. Paul did not want to be complacent in his spiritual life. He did not want the Philippian Christians to be complacent, to be satisfied with where they were. And determined that as long as we stay the course, and we stay where we are, and stay doctrinally sound, then we're okay before God. No, Paul wanted them to grow, and he wanted to grow, and he wants us to grow even today. Much like the man who went to talk to his friend one day. The man was terribly depressed. And, and, and after the friend had talked to him for a few minutes, he realized that most of his discouragement centered around his job situation. And he said, well, tell me what happened. He said, my, my, my boss just really chewed me out the other day. And he said, uh, told his friend, I can't understand it because I'm, I was the top salesman in our agency last month. And when I received notice that the boss wanted to see me in the office, uh, I thought he was going to compliment me. But when I got there, instead, he laid into me for not living up to my potential. Well, it so happened that a few days later, that friend to whom he had talked had opportunity to talk to the young man's, uh, the young salesman's boss, about how he was performing, and, and he said something I think very insightful. He said, "Larry is one of our best salesmen, potentially the best salesman I've ever known, but he has one glaring weakness, and that is he has the tendency to be satisfied with his performance. And if I didn't work his case occasionally, he wouldn't produce at all." And I have to ask this question, does that sound at all descriptive of our own spiritual standing and our own spiritual performance and production? A certain degree of dissatisfaction is absolutely necessary to making spiritual growth. Again, if you're satisfied with where you are and you feel like that you have arrived and that there's no need for any further progress on your part, then you're destined to stay right where you are or even begin to start taking some steps back. When you become thoroughly satisfied with your spiritual stature, then Paul says you have signaled the end of your spiritual growth. I think just in the last week or two we looked at 1 Corinthians 10:12 where Paul said wherefore let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So when you feel like that you are there, that you have already arrived in the land of promise in terms of your own relationship to God, then guess what? You haven't even really begun the journey yet. Step number one in Paul's program, his plan for spiritual growth was to be dissatisfied with where you are right now. Here's step number two. If you'll look very carefully at our text, I think that you'll see it here. And that was singleness of purpose. Paul said this one thing. I do. That tells us that not only was this on Paul's list of priorities to make sure that he was growing spiritually every day, but that it was at the very top of his list of priorities. It it held the number one spot. Paul said this one thing, I do. So whether he was mending nets or writing a letter or preaching a sermon, he was driven by one all-consuming purpose, and that was to become like Christ. And then to be able to share Christ with everyone around him. And unless being Christ-like is first place in our lives, there isn't much chance that we're going to succeed as Christians. I'll just be honest with you. Because Paul is communicating that in a lot of other things in our text. We've got to realize how important this one thing I do is in Christian life. It also means that we need to be very careful that we don't spread ourselves too thin. Now I'm going to talk about that in just a moment, but I want to get the concept in the forefront of our minds first, and that is that we can be so involved in a lot of really good and worthy activities that the most important things in life can be crowded out. That is, we can use what is good as an excuse for not doing better, and we can use doing better as an excuse for not doing the very best, and giving our best to God in kingdom service. And so we need to recognize how important that, that list of priorities is, and Paul is communicating that, I think, in our text. To, to have so many goals, to have so many purposes, and so many interests in life, To, to as, as the old saying goes, to have your iron in so many different fires, it is impossible to give yourself wholeheartedly to any of them, and that's spiritually self-defeating. Is what Paul is communicating. I think I've used this illustration before, but it's been a few years. And maybe if it was last Sunday, some of you would have forgotten. But anyway, I want a chance using it again. I remember growing up in a small town. And you know where that was. <laughs> and when I was just a boy, there was a, a pocket knife in the major hardware store in our town. That absolutely fat, well, what am I talking about? The major, the only hardware store in our town. And and, and that pocket knife just, it, it was in a showcase in the hardware store. And every time I was in there, I had to go pay it a visit because it fascinated me. And I'd often look at it longingly, I might say. Every now and then, the clerk would even take it out of the showcase and, you know, let me hold it and handle it and see all the things that it had on it. And, and, and it had everything, man. I mean, it had two blades and a screwdriver and, and a pair of scissors and a can opener and an ice pick and nail fire. It even had a, a spoon and a fork on it. I dreamed of owning that knife. And I saved my money for a long time. It tells you what how much allowance I got. I saved my money for a long time until I finally had enough money to purchase that knife. I'm happy to announce to you this morning that that knife cost me $2. And it wasn't worth two cents. And I'll tell you why. Because it was too versatile. It had so much stuff on it, you could hardly even open it and use it. But while I was looking at it and while it was in the showcase or while it was in my hands and I wasn't having to use it, I thought that was the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know what I'm talking about. And yet, when I actually had that thing, I realized that it was too versatile. It was trying to do too many different things. And I think that illustrates what can happen to us in our own spiritual lives. We can have so many interests and get involved in so many things that our, our spiritual lives actually can suffer from malnutrition. I remember hearing a preacher one time say many years ago in a lectureship that, that we can do church work all the time and all of our lives and Satan is pleased as long as we aren't leading anybody to the Lord. You know, so we can be involved even down at church. But if we're not bringing people to Christ, then, then Satan is perfectly satisfied with our spiritual agenda, So I'm just saying this morning as a challenge to each of us, we need to be very careful that we not try to compartmentalize our lives. That we don't have a compartment over here in one corner of our lives that says spiritual life. That's not the way it works. If you've read the first three chapters of the book of Philippians, if you've just read chapter 3 and our text, you know that Paul is saying this has to be the magnificent obsession for every one of us. This has to be our consuming passion. This has to be the number one objective that we have in lives, in our lives if we're going to follow the Lord, if we're going to grow spiritually and grow more into his image each day. So if you really want to have success in your spiritual life, you're going to have to put it ahead of everything else. And I hope you're listening very carefully to that because that is so vitally important. About halfway through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually said that. So apparently it was important to him. He wanted to communicate that to those that were gathered there on the mount, those disciples of his who had already said, I'm going to follow this Jesus. And and I remind you that Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, which comprised the Sermon on the Mount, was primarily delivered to those who were already disciples. Now, I suspect that there were people who had not yet made that commitment that were there. But clearly what Jesus said was addressing those who were already disciples. And in chapter 6 verse 33 is where he said seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these material things will be added unto you. Make sure that you don't have the cart before the horse in your spiritual life. Make sure that you're seeking first not just seeking the kingdom. You see we can I think placate ourselves and rationalize and justify having the wrong priorities as long as the kingdom is somewhere on our list. And that's not what Jesus said, and that's not what Paul is saying in our text. He isn't saying you need to have kingdom business somewhere on your list of priorities. No, Jesus said you seek it first. That's the only way that you have then the promise of God that the material things will be added to you. I think even church members sometimes are are laboring under the impression that if I I really seek for material things and financial security in life, that the Lord is going to give me what I need spiritually, and no, it really is just the other way around. He said, if you'll make sure that your priorities are right, and that kingdom business and the righteousness of God is the number one priority in your life, the Lord is going to make sure that all of these things are taken care of. That doesn't mean that you just sit in your recliner and he's going to give them to you, but he's going to see that all of these things, that all the necessary elements will be brought together that will allow you to be able to have a degree of peace in your life and financial material security, but only if you keep your priorities right. So this one thing I do takes on immense importance, not just with Paul, not just with the Philippians, but with the University Church of Christ as well. We've got to lock in on that and realize how vitally important, how imperative this is. To win, you've got to concentrate. And I mean keep your eye on the gold and refuse to let anything distract you from your number one priority in life. Someone has illustrated it like this. If a river overflows, the whole area becomes a swamp. Swamp. But you can take that same river and dam it up and control it and it become a source of great power we call it hydroelectric power. And the same is true in our lives. It's a matter of of values. It's a matter of priorities. So I'm just asking you this morning from my heart to yours, what is it that you are living for? Not just what are all the the what is the variety of things that you're doing with your life and how are you occupying your time? I'm asking you this morning, what are you living for? What is the ultimate purpose of your life? What is the meaning of your life? If someone were on the street in Montgomery, Alabama, were to ask you when you leave this building this morning, what is your life all about? What is the most important thing to you? What is the most important thing in your life? When you truthfully can answer those questions, you're going to have a pretty clear view of whether or not you're going to succeed in your spiritual life. So Paul's second step was singleness of purpose, this one thing I do. Here's the third step in his program for spiritual success. And that is, and and maybe this is the toughest one so far, it's it's forgetting the past. It's being able to take those things, the mistakes that we have made in our lives, to appropriate God's forgiveness the way that he has directed in his word. We'll say a little bit more about that later on as well. But also to realize that while repentance takes place in the mind in the heart of man, forgiveness takes place in the heart of God. And the only way that we can know that God has truly forgiven us and wiped those sins, those mistakes, those transgressions out of his ledger book is to take his word for it. And that can be very difficult to just take God's word, to know that these sins have been forgotten by God. But Paul is saying, if you're, going, if you're going to succeed spiritually, you have just got to do that. And who would be better qualified than the Apostle Paul to be able to give us that challenge? I mean, you think about what Paul had done, the foremost persecutor of Christianity. And now here he is, probably the foremost proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul had lots of things in his past that he desperately needed to forget. In fact, he had to forget those things. If he was going to be able to cope emotionally, psychologically, as well as spiritually with his current life, he said, forgetting what lies behind, I press on. Isn't that great therapy? I mean and not just therapy, not just to make us feel better about ourselves, to know that our mistakes have been forgotten by the sovereign God of heaven, but also to know that the only way that we're equipped to be able to live successfully today and tomorrow and the next year and the next year until the Lord comes back is to be able to say with Paul, I'm forgetting the things which are behind and I'm pressing on. I mean, if any past experience is keeping you folks from living victoriously, then you have to forget it. The past should be a guidepost, but it can never be a hitching post. And you know what I mean by that. Paul's past was just checkered with shameful deeds. He had persecuted Christians. He had even used his authority to have some of them executed. I mean put to death. There were people whose blood was on Paul's hands. And nobody knew that better than Paul. And unless he could forget those things, he was never going to be a productive Christian. I think that there are people today in 2019 who are not living up to their spiritual potential because they have really good memories about things that rightfully should be forgotten. Don't you? I mean, that's just, I think, a challenge that all of us face. So if you're normal, there are some things in your past. Maybe not to the same degree as the Apostle Paul, but every one of us this morning who have lived long enough on this this globe, we've got some things in our past that we're ashamed of. Things that we do not want to have laid on our shoulders and, and us still be responsible and accountable for when we stand before the God of heaven. I'll guarantee you that. I think every one of us would agree with that statement. So you need to seek forgiveness of those wrongs, and then you must forget them. And I hope that you will take that and deposit that in your spiritual bank. One of the great beauties of Christianity is that God gives every one of us a chance to start over again. Isn't that right? If any man is in Christ Jesus, all things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new second corinthians 5 and verse 17 so paul got to the point in his spiritual maturity where he was able to actually say that in christ we are a brand new creation and old things have passed away all things have become new everything has changed now god has wiped my slate clean and has given me the opportunity to start all over again so he's willing to completely erase every wrong that you've ever committed in fact, he said, I will forgive their iniquity and their sins. I will remember no more. That's from the mouth of God. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four. Unless you think that's an Old Testament principle applicable only to the Old Testament days. It's repeated in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12. So in Old Testament and New Testament, God reminds us that through him and because of what he has done for us redemptively, we're able to have our past mistakes washed away and wiped from God's book of memory. You know, when a person violates the law, then he has to pay a debt. The idea is, at least, he may even get a prison sentence. I heard some fellow say the other day that in Montgomery, Alabama, you murder somebody, man, you could do weeks for that. But, and that's right. That's about where we are. But sometimes you actually have to spend some time in prison Because of some violation of a a civil law. But after serving that allotted time, we oftentimes hear this phrase he or she has paid their debt to society. And that's right. But in truth, real life is a little bit different from that. If a person has done something for which they have had to spend some prison time, the reality is. That that's always going to be somewhat of a blot on their record. Now, that doesn't mean that God can't and won't forgive them. That, not at all. We know that God can forgive anything that we're willing to repent of and make right. Um, so I'm not saying that God won't forget. I'm saying that we live in a society where people have long memories. And so someone who has ha- had that kind of record may find it hard to get a job or to get credit or to hold public office. That's just the reality of the consequences of of, of a crime that's that serious but I'm here to announce to you the good news of the gospel with God the situation is completely different when Paul was ready to change his life when he literally saw the light on the road to Damascus and realized that everything that he had been doing up until that point was not what God wanted him to do he had been persecuting the very people of God he was man enough mature enough had sufficient integrity of heart to acknowledge that And Ananias was sent to that Saul after three days of prayer and fasting. And what he told him was the very message of God. I want you to get up, Ananias said, and arise from from where you are and be baptized and wash away your sins. That had to be the greatest news Paul had ever heard. You mean I can just have my sins washed away? In the blood of Jesus Christ, where we contact his blood in the act of baptism, Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, teaches us very clearly that as many of us as have been baptized into his death, or have been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death. That's where we contact his blood. And then we're raised to walk in a newness of life. Those are Paul's words in Romans chapter 6. So we're able to start our lives all over again. God God is different. God is not going to hold this as a blot against our character or in in our record for the rest of our lives. And at that point, Paul was completely forgiven by God. His past was forgotten by God. And his sins were completely obliterated. He was never going to face them again. Paul would never, ever Again, be accountable to any of those sins that he had committed up until the point when he was baptized into Christ. And I'm just here to announce to you this morning that God offers us the exact same thing. And aren't you glad? We're here this morning instead of someplace else. Because we wanted to express our deep, and I mean deep, appreciation to a God who is willing to forget. And who is willing to take everything that we've done, if we're a New Testament Christian this morning, we know that, at least cognitively. But I'm just asking us this morning to allow that to bury very deep into our hearts and not just into our heads, to realize that we serve a God who is willing to wash away every one of our sins, to infer the righteousness of of His Son into our lives. We'll never be worthy. And every day of our lives, we can pillow our heads thankful to a God of tender mercies and amazing grace. It's so important that we come to that point point of recognition. So when we place our faith in him and we repent of our past sins and we're baptized, all all of our sins are forgiven. Man, that's easy for a preacher to say. But very hard for us to actually wrap our brains around. It's it's been that way from Acts 2.38, from the day of Pentecost forward. That if I'll just turn my back on sin and repentance, I'll confess Jesus as God's son based on my faith in him. That I really believe that Jesus is God's son and I'm willing to confess that and be baptized. The blood of Jesus Christ will wash away every one of my past mistakes. Now if we're going to succeed in, in living the Christian life, then we're going to have to accept God's offer of forgiveness. And we're going to have to forget our past Step number four, and the last one, at least in our text, in Paul's formula for spiritual growth, is to press toward the goal. So it isn't just enough to turn your back on the past and say, I'm forgetting, I have determined to forget all the things that I've done and all the things that hurt God's heart. But now I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing better. So that's where Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You know, it's a picture of a man running down the home stretch, the sprint at the end of a distance run, the tape. That marks the end of the run is right in front of him. He's straining, he's leaning forward. He's spending his last ounce of energy to, to win the race, to be able to finish that race. And Paul was giving everything that he had to become more like Jesus, straining to reach his full spiritual potential. That's the idea that in the imagery that comes forth when he says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was giving everything he could to fulfill, live up to his full spiritual potential. And I have to ask, because this isn't just a history lesson this morning, are we doing the same thing right now in our lives? That is the price for spiritual success. And it's the reason why so many of God's people are not winning. There are too many things that are more important to us. Let me assure you, you can be spiritually successful. I mean, we have God's guarantee in virtually every page of this book that that is the case, but not unless Not unless we want this more than anything else in the world. Christianity cannot be fifth or sixth on your list of priorities. Church membership can't just be another item on your date sheet. It'd have to be first or you won't succeed at it. Either Christ means all to you or he means nothing at all. And so if Paul's goal is your goal and if you're as determined as he was, you will succeed. You have God's guarantee. And if that's your all-consuming objective, then you have the Holy Spirit's assurance that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, your Lord. That's Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 38. But so many things vie, compete for our time and our attention in today's busy world. Where does the Christian and how does the Christian fit all of this in to his or her schedule? Well, for some, it's just something to be taken and to be done on Sunday, kind of like taking your vitamins in the morning. Let's go to church. We'll take care of the spiritual aspect of our lives. And we'll go home and we'll carry on as if nothing really important has happened. And the other six days are crammed full of other interests and demands and little or no attention is given to the spiritual. That's the danger that Paul says I want to challenge you and to shake you out of. And as your friend this morning I have to tell you that you'll never succeed in your spiritual life unless you are willing to truthfully and objectively examine your life in order to be able to firmly set your spiritual direction in life. Now, here's about the most scholarly thing I'll say this morning as we wind this up. In a Peanuts cartoon, is everybody with me? Have we elevated the level of scholasticism from this pulpit? In a Peanuts cartoon, Lucy asked Charlie Brown, You know what the trouble with you is, Charlie Brown? And he said, No, and I don't want to know. Leave me alone. She shouted after him. The whole trouble with you is... You are not willing to listen to what the whole trouble with you is. And that's about the way it can be with some of us. We don't want anyone telling us what the trouble with us is. It's too painful. It, it, it punctures our pride and it wounds our ego. They may move, force us to move in a direction that we don't really go want to go. It's not in our comfort zone. But it is spiritually profitable, Paul says, to face the facts about ourselves. To really know where you stand in your relationship to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot grow until we're willing to first examine our lives closely. As Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And we'll talk more about that, Lord willing, at 5 o'clock. So I have to ask, are you living up to your spiritual potential this morning? You may sense failure because you haven't adopted a clear-cut plan for spiritual growth like Paul did. One that you will stay with and one that will take precedence over everything else Paul has given us a plan and I really hope that you'll put it into action let's let's run through it again very quickly number one in a nutshell he said you have to be dissatisfied with your current spiritual stature if you're totally satisfied then you've eliminated the possibility of further growth and development number two Paul says you have to have singleness of purpose everything that you do in your life has to contribute to your one aim of being like Jesus Number three, Paul says you need to forget the past. Obtain the forgiveness of your sins by God's plan. Do it the way God said do it, and then you forget those sins. There's nothing more that, that you can do about your past mistakes. God is willing to forget them, and Paul is saying in our text, then you need to be willing to do the same thing. And then finally, push relentlessly toward the goal. Give it everything you have. Let absolutely nothing stand in your way and make no move spiritually without first considering how that it contributes to your goal of living for Jesus Christ. And maybe that's what you need to be doing this morning, starting right now while we stand and while we sing. I am no more. I am no more. I've been born. Thank you for being here this morning. And again, at 5, we'll be looking at the unexamined life. Hope to see you then.